you know, the coolest prayers that I've ever heard. have been those that have come straight from the heart. It's been a full week. I'm sitting down. I'm tired. My heart is full. Um, and they can't, there can't be any more truth to that, to um, Tyler's prayer and statement. And it's not because I jumped out of a plane. <laughs> yes, I did. For some of you are wondering, like, what was he talking about? Yes, I did that. I got a bucket list check. Been there, done that. All right, now let's move on. Um, but as, as most of you know, this has been a very trying time for our family as well. Um, my mother-in-law came to visit us and to grace us with her presence for two weeks, her and her husband. And it turned out to be a surprise. You got cancer. Kind of a visit. And so for the last, since October 4th, this is the day that she arrived, um, she's been with us. But I am happy to announce that she completed her cycles of chemotherapy and that we got a preliminary result um, that's very positive. So on Monday, we go in to see the doctors, um, the doctor, the, uh, the oncologist. He's going to give us the final verdict, per se. Um, and if everything goes right, and if everything goes according to what we all have been praying for, she will leave back home for home, her home, on the next Monday. So we're looking forward to that, and I want to say thank you for your prayers. I know she uh, is, is, is thankful for all the support that you guys have shown, not just to her, uh, but, but to our family as well. So that prayer, Tyler, can't be more truer than... Just the simple words. We we never know. We never know. And uh, I am grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. So when we look at God and we look at the Bible and we preach a God of love, we preach a God that gave his only son that Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We, we are immediately filled with the expectation that something's good's going to happen, right? We are filled with that idea that God is going to come through when we believe. But then you open your Bible and you read stories like Noah. And there are many skeptics out there that said, you know, if this is really a God of love, 
why would he regret creating humanity? Why would he destroy the earth? That's not a God of love. That's a God of vengeance. That's a God who doesn't care. And you know, many times when we go through difficult phases, I didn't say times, I said phases, because, or I could even say the word waves. There are waves in our lifetime that come through, and waves, if, if you have done any surfing at all, you'll know that waves come in cycles, in sets. It's not just one wave, it's a set. First wave is usually the smallest. The second is, quite, is a little bit bigger. And the last one, the third or fourth set, sometimes there are five in a set. The, the longer the set, the taller the, and the bigger the waves as they come in. And if you haven't experienced that in, in the water, you may have experienced that in your life. And so when we look at the, at the Genesis account, it, it, it seems as if this wave just keeps getting bigger and bigger. These sets just keep coming because in Genesis 1, 2, it's great, it's a beautiful world. And then chapter 3, Adam and Eve just fudge it up for everybody else. Then if we, if we think that the worst has just happened, you read chapter 4, you see that the oldest murders the youngest, son of Adam. And then God curses Cain. Not to mention of the curses that God had already given on the previous chapter, in chapter 3, where he curses the woman, for she will now have pains when she gives birth. Man is going to toil the ground, and, and it's going to be work. It's going to be hard. And they're going to experience death. Then chapter 5 rolls around, and we have the genealogy. In chapter 6, we get the introduction to, to Noah. And God says, hey, I'm going to destroy this place. Chapter 7, we have the dimensions of the ark and then chapter and, and what happens in that the 40 days of rain and 40 nights as well. In chapter 8, we have a key verse there, then God remembers Noah, and we talked about this last week. So today, we're going to jump into chapter 9. And we're going to do it a little bit differently than we did in the previous uh, sermons because today we're actually going to look at parallels of creation in chapter 9, which is going to give us a, a better perspective of who God is and what happened that he needed to, if we can put it that way, to recreate the earth. So let's open our Bibles then. Genesis chapter 9. But we're going to begin not with chapter 9 because the way that the text is written in the original language, 
the context of it begins in chapter 8. I don't have the words on the screen, intentionally so. I would like for you to jump in there because we're going to go through this and we're going to kind of talk about seeing what has happened here. But let's open to eight, chapter 8, verse 20. And it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. As we read this verse, I'm going to ask this question throughout this morning's worship service is, is there a parallel to this? Do you remember reading the story up until this point? Is there, who gave an offering that was, or a sacrifice that was pleasing to God? Yes. Abel. But unlike Cain, whose sacrifice was unaccepted. So we see that from the very moment where God now has re- recreated in a sense where chaos has ended. I'm actually going to leave this off because it's... When you look at chapter 8 and you have chaos where, where there's waters all over the earth, there's also a parallel to that to the very first chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then you keep on reading, and the earth was empty and without void. And it was, there was chaos. There was waters over the, the earth. It wasn't like there was dry land so here's it begins with chapter 8 with the the, the 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 parallel with before god came into the picture and now there's destruction and there's chaotic and there's a chaotic environment and now we transition and we move through together and after the sin entered the world you have both abel offering a sacrifice to god looking to maintain a righteous and holy relationship. And remember, in chapter, uh, in chapter 6, we see that in God saw Noah, and Noah found grace in God. The flood happens. Noah is now out of the ark, and he builds an altar and offers a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 21, And the Lord smelled the smoothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his mouth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. See, Adam's rebellion led God to destroy the earth, right? Or to curse the ground. So now the, we have God comes and he sees Noah's faith and he, and he says, I will now no longer evermore destroy the earth. Why? 
because of his mercy. Because when he says this, he has, he's already seen the destruction. He's already promised. He's, man, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there has been something already pre-established that because of this thing that was already pre-established with Adam, that God now says, okay, I'm not going to destroy the earth ever again for man's sake. Why? Because of his mercy. And you may think of all that, Pastor Art, that's not that big a deal. I beg to differ. It is a big deal. It's a big deal because God, as I said, God has established something. Now let's continue. It says, While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and the day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and Again, do you remember seeing that before? Are you, are you starting to catch on a little bit? Have you ever looked at this chapter and connected it with chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis? God is recreating the world. He's trying to establish a world where people would want to have a relationship with God, where they would want to thrive under God's reign as sovereign God and king. And he is bestowing upon Noah now the same blessing that he has given Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and all that the fish of the sea. They are given to you into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning, and the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require a life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by this blood shall he be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply in it. See, up until this point, you have... God's blessing, just as he did in the Garden of Eden. And he now commissions Adam to do something, excuse me, Noah, to fulfill the same obligations that God instituted with Adam. No, Noah is not a new Adam, but he's a type of Adam that reflects God's original intent for relationship. That's why God, when Moses wrote the book of 
of Genesis, he puts it there. And Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Because he was continuing, he was having a relationship with him. See, God blesses Noah and gives him the commission to be fruitful and to multiply because God wants to populate the earth with God-fearing people. God not only wants Noah and his family to reestablish themselves in the earth as now God's people, but he also provides food for them as, as he did in the garden of Adam of, of Eve. Eden, excuse me, Garden of Eden, not Eve. The Garden of Eden. He provides every herb for food, not fro, for. And, but there's a difference here. He says, you, you can now eat flesh. Well, that makes sense because they had just come out of a year-long hiatus inside a boat there wasn't enough time for them to plant and cultivate, to farm, to grow. And so that's one of the reasons why God said, take seven of every clean animal, which is complete contrast with those that were unclean. They were to serve as for food. But again, remember, God's original plan was for humanity at that point in time before sin entered the world to be vegans. I'm not saying it. The Bible is. And if you're not a vegan, that's okay. You will not lose your salvation because of it. Because God has allowed us to eat, but he has instructed us what is clean and what is unclean. That comes a little bit later. But the ideal still stands. The ideal that God wanted to create, this society where everybody was following Jesus, it hasn't changed. However, what has changed now is that he demands justice. This is the very first occasion in the Bible where you have retribution for shedding blood. This is when God says, okay, somebody murders somebody they will pay with that life. Why? Because the blood that is in them, the blood that flows through their veins, is sacred. That is the lifeblood. That is where it holds the breath of God. That's what happens when Jesus came down and fashioned Adam and breathed into Adam's nostrils. That breath of God is in every cell of our body. That breath of God is what gives us life. It's what regenerates life within us. And when we do that, we take the place of the only one who has the authority to judge us. That's why it's so important for God that we not kill each other. Literally. But sometimes we kill each other verbally, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. It's all the same. 
but God values life. And that's why when he gives this guidance, it's a, it's a mechanism for, for society to regulate itself so it doesn't corrupt itself to the point of the anti-prediluvians. Are you beginning to see why it's important for us to have laws? Why God instituted certain things even before we have any record of a established republic, democratic environment? All of this is because their humanity in of itself is incapable of reflecting the image of God unless God steps in and gives us direction. Yeah, the pastor Art, this doesn't change the fact that he killed an entire world filled with humans. What kind of God is that? I'm glad you're asking yourself that question. Because God also establishes a covenant with, Adam, with Noah. He says, Then God spoke to Noah, to his sons, with him. Verse 9. As for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Let me pause here for a moment. Do you remember, well, at least I hope you do, last time we talked about the word establish in here in the Old Testament, the word that is used is the word not that he fashioned something, but that he had already, that he's acting upon a decision that or a plan that was already made. In other words, when God first appears to Noah, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, not because he's fashioning something different. And the word covenant here is something that is binding. It's like a contract. God isn't just saying, I'm going to create a contract with you. He's, what he is really saying is, I'm going to confirm my contract that has been created before you were born. Where was this contract created? With Adam. You must be thinking to yourself, where is that contract? Go to Genesis chapter 3, real quickly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is one of those instances because, remember, the initial contract is God created an environment and, and set it up for Adam and Eve to thrive in it. They, they had, God had given them purpose. He had given them a blessing. He had given them food. He had given them, he set them up for success. All they had to do is, get thee behind me, Satan, done. Nope, that's not what happened. And so now, we just read God establishes a covenant with 
a binding agreement. God is saying, listen, I'm not going to create a new covenant. I'm going to reaffirm it. Now with you and your generation for all eternity. But here's what I like the most about this. Let's go back. Chapter 9. And with every, verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that, go, that will go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Notice how many times he says this. I'm, re, I'm ratifying it. I am going to honor it. I'm going to fulfill that which I have promised since the beginning of time. Never again, but here's the, here's the new component of it. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again there shall be a flood to destroy the earth. I mean, let me just open parentheses. I went on a, on a rabbit hole. Um, I went down a rabbit hole this week. And looking for things that would be evidence of a worldwide flood. When you Google that, you'll find many opportunities to go down a rabbit hole that is contradicting what the Bible says. There is more evidence, quote unquote, of this is just a localized flood or this is just, it cannot happen, or there was a flood, but it happened 65 million years ago at the time of the dinosaurs, according to evolution. But then I, I found this, this gentleman uh, that he talks about when you, all of you have computers at home, all of you have some form of ability to look at Google Earth, and you zoom in, into the, the country of Mauritania, you will see something that is eye-catching. It is clear as day. Do you know when you go to the beach and you see the hard-packed sand and the waters come and when they go away, there's waves and ripples on the sand? Yeah, except exponentially larger you find that in the Saharan Desert. And, they, and, and this gentleman, he goes on to say that if you, if you zoom out again, you'll see markings on the rocks where water had to er erode from or, or leave, and that doesn't happen by wind. So I took what he said, and I'm like, okay, well, that, there's got to be evidence elsewhere in the country or in the world, right? So I came to North America. And if you go to Google Earth, if you use that as a, as a reference, go over to Nevada, the Mexico border. You will find those same ripples in the same direction of an ocean where water had to go through. I will even take it a step further. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm not saying this is... This has proven scientifically. However, I do believe that the only logical explanation 
is that you continue to look up and you see these rock formations that the length of it is north-south. All of them. That is where water eroded towards the south. It wasn't towards the north. And it drained all the way through into the Sea of Cortez. Curious fact. Now let me digress. Right? He says, I will reestablish my covenant with you. In other words, this is a binding, a binding contract, an agreement that he's not going to destroy. And what does he say? I'm going to set a sign for you that you, every time you see this, you will know that I will never again destroy the earth. I will set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Who's the covenant be- between of the rainbow? Is it humanity? Yeah, it is. Is it the earth? Yes, it is. The answer is all of the above. God's covenant is a reminder that he will never destroy the earth ever again through a flood. But here's the problem. Even if he were to destroy the earth again, as he did with Noah, what happened to sin? It's still here. Did you know that the word rainbow in, in the Hebrew language is actually not the word rainbow? It's the same word that is used to describe a military weapon, the bow. And so God is telling him, Noah, I am putting my weapon of war and I'm hanging it up. Which way, Steve, you can't answer this. Which way is the bow, the bow pointing? Up. The problem of sin cannot be eradicated unless it is resolved, resolved from above. The problem of sin cannot be eradicated through the destruction of an entire race. The problem of sin cannot be eradicated by the destruction of a world that was created by God unless it is taken care of by above. And here's, here's, here's what is interesting about this is because when you pull back and you, and you draw on a bow, it curves so the arrow will f- go in that direction. In this instance, yes, we know it's curved, pointing up, which means it's going to cost God something. Weapons, when is fired, when are fired, it is meant to destroy and to kill. doesn't matter which weapon it is. If you have a knife in your hand and you use it as a weapon, it's designed to kill. If you have a gun in your hand and you decide to use it on someone else, it's designed to kill. These are we- weapons 
cause for destruction. A bow is designed for the same thing. Do you think, had we lived, had Adam and Eve not fallen, do you believe that weapons would ever have been created? So God is hanging up his weapon of war. And he's saying, I got this. I got this. Remember, the, 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 the covenant was already established. It was, it was established before he came to talk to, uh, to, to Noah. How do I know this? Oh, this is one of my favorite texts in the entire Bible. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. See, before God created this world, he had a plan. He had a plan with your name on it, with my name on it, that it was a a guarantee, that was a plan to say, listen, just in case Adam and Eve fall, just in case something should happen, you know what we call that? Warranty. You go and you buy yourself a car and you purchase what? Warranty. You go and buy yourself a computer. You're given the option to purchase warranty. God created a warranty for humanity when he established before the foundation of the world, before creation ever happened, an opportunity for you and I to reconcile with him. That's why when we look at the story of Noah, it is much more than just about a a God who destroys the world. It's a God who's trying desperately to have the people he created to focus on a relationship with him. And so when he sets the rainbow, it's not just a reminder for you and I that God's not going to destroy the world because we know God is fair. We know God is love. God is going to do what he promises, but we have to be reminded that it cost him something. That's why we have John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have everlasting love. Why? Because God gave his son. And before the foundation of the world, he knew. Revelation chapter 13, excuse me, 13, it says that the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus didn't die before but he had volunteered he had chosen to say if art if he chooses something other than me he's got a warranty that will cover him in my blood that's what it means But there's still something else. There's still something else. You know, Steve and I, we were talking this morning about what's it feel like to jump out of a perfectly good plane 
And I, I promise you, I, I was racking my head. I'm like, Lord, I, the sermon is not complete. And it wasn't until this morning that God's like, it's been staring you straight in the nose, right between your eyes. The problem isn't about choosing mental assent. The problem is about committing. We can read the story and we can say, okay, I, I recognize that God's trying to recreate. And you can recognize that Jesus came, and, and science recognizes that Jesus came into this world, but it's the point when, and here was my, my lesson that I hadn't, for, I needed to be reminded of. See, I do not have a fear of heights. I love it. My, my wife and I, we were married before kids. We went to visit. We went to visit a friend of mine. I did, I did a week of prayer. And then he took us to go see these canyons in, in southern Brazil that I had no idea it existed. But you're looking at about a kilometer high cliff. Up until that point, there was no barrier. You could literally drive a your car off the cliff if you chose to. We parked at a safe distance, and we proceeded to walk, and I walked right up to the edge. My wife was a nervous wreck. I've done some pretty stupid things. Involving heights. And I can tell you what I, what I did on Friday is the farthest thing from stupid. For some of you, you're like, no, <laughs> no me, no. But here's, here's where I, I'm, I'm going at. Going up in that plane ride, I knew I wasn't afraid of the height. There was a 12,500-foot drop from the point that we left the plane to the ground. That's roughly two miles, three kilometers. It wasn't the speed for which we would be falling at 120 miles an hour. It wasn't the, the parachute. I knew that was going to open. And if it didn't, there was a reserve chute. And I knew that was checked and rechecked. And I knew that was going to open. It wasn't the people that instructed me that were the issue. They had, they had logged anywhere from two to 3,000 jumps already. So experience was not. And it wasn't the pilot of the plane. Because I know that that's what he got paid to do. And was trained for. The problem is that when you start going up, and you know all of these things, but then your toes are at the edge of that plane. And you're f flying, literally, at that height, at that altitude at about 150 miles an hour, give or take, 
and you have to commit. It's the committing part that is scary. It's that part where you have to make the conscious decision, I'm going to do this no matter what. That's the scary part for somebody who doesn't know God. And we're sitting there, and he's like, all right, we're going to go, and you're going to feel me rocking you back and forth, back and forth. I was expecting to go on three, and we went one, two. Some of us have our toes on the edge of the plane of our spiritual walk with God. But we haven't jumped fully. And let me tell you, it wasn't the landing that covered me because the landing was soft. And I promise you that when you jump on with God, your landing will be soft. There will be times, and so one of the one of the, the feelings that I had as I'm going on this free fall at 120 miles an hour. There was so much oxygen I couldn't breathe. And I had to face down where I could breathe and then raise my head back up so I could see everything, everything around me. There are times in our lives where we feel so inundated, there's so much going on that we can't breathe. We need to take that time to put our head down and say, Lord, help me to breathe. That's what this story is about. It's not about a God who's mean. It's not about a God who's going to destroy the, or, or the world and then promises not to. It's about a God who has said, listen, I've already committed to you. I've jumped. I'm, I'm all in in this for you to the point that my son is willing to die for you. Are you willing to commit? Are you willing to put your toes up on the edge of that plane of life and jump?